0: This podcast is supported by VPL, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my co-host Peter Jewell.
1: Hi, hi Jess. How are you?
0: Very good, thank you. <laughs> now it's very early in the morning here. We, are, this is our first podcast with three continents. We've got Melbourne, London, and Tennessee. How are you feeling, Pete?
1: I'm excited, Jess. We've got brilliant guests, so it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: So achieving rezoning is that's the process whereby the purpose or intensity of land is changed or increased, and it's really difficult for a myriad of reasons. This is due to a reluctance for change, nimbyism, or the glacial change of changes to master plans or citywide strategies. It's a very top-down approach, and our guests today propose a radical alternative to the usual way of doing business, a ground-up, localised approach to development potential. We discovered today's guests john myers and michael hendricks via a fascinating article from the manhattan institute titled to create more affordable housing make zoning hyperlocal just by way of introduction john myers is the co-founder of the london yimby and yimby alliance campaigns in the uk the yimby is an alliance of campaigns working to end the housing crisis united by a belief that the housing crisis poor living conditions, displacement and homelessness are unjust, unfair and unacceptable. They also include bimbies, which is beauty in my backyard, slimbies, which is something lovely in my backyard and shimbies or chimbies, which is social council housing in my backyard. The only people not welcome are bananas, which is build absolutely, absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. Michael Hendricks, however, is the Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute. Previously, he served as Senior Director for Research and Emerging Issues at the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation. Michael is a frequent public speaker, and his writings have have appeared in, among others, National Review, City Journal, and National Affairs. He holds an MA in International Relations from the University of St Andrews in Scotland, as well as a Certificate in Strategy and Performance Management from Georgetown University. Welcome to the show, John and Michael. We're thrilled to have you on our podcast
2: today. Thank you. It's
1: good to be with you. John, can you just give us a brief biography beyond what Jess has already set out?
2: Yeah, sure. So I was originally um, a competition or antitrust lawyer, as Americans would call it, and then I worked as an investment analyst. And I first got interested in housing when I realized just how broken the housing market is. You know, it's it's worse than some of the worst competitional problems I'd ever seen. Um, and it's one of the most dysfunctional industries I'd ever analyzed. So I just couldn't resist it.
1: And Michael, also, could you give a, uh, expand upon that little brief bio?
3: Sure, so I'm from Texas originally. I grew up in the suburbs. I'm a child of the suburbs and sprawl. And there was a lot of lovely things about the suburbs and sprawl. um, Yards, delightful neighbors. But you know, something began to change as I grew up, uh, moved out for college, went to Scotland uh, for uni, moved to DC for work, and I realized I loved neighbors. And in fact, I loved more neighbors, more the better. And not only that, but I, I began to love cities and found them to be one of the one of humanity's greatest inventions for human flourishing. And I began to also realize that it was a tragedy that for, for such an, an, an incredible invention of prosperity that it was increasingly inaccessible. Cities were increasingly inaccessible to people who are not otherwise prosperous or well-connected. And that, that, for me, that initial realization that we needed to open up cities to be accessible to more people, to take advantage of all of what they have to offer, that that was going to become a big part of what my life's work would involve. And so here at the Manhattan Institute, we try not just through housing, but through transportation, public finance, you name it, to open up more cities to more people more neighbors for more neighbors
0: and how did the two of you come to work on this project together
2: so i say that well um so in the uk our campaigns have been working for a few years now on various ideas um along this these lines which have now had significant traction with the uk government uh, they've been covered on bbc television irish tv and even new zealand radio um, and i wrote up a pretty technical working paper for the US. I can only recommend as a cure for insomnia. Uh, And Michael's institution, the Manhattan Institute, very kindly approached me with the idea of setting it out as a more practical set of ideas.
3: I was gonna say, John's being very humble. He's done a terrific amount of work to advance uh, some of his ideas, which we'll dig into more. And I saw how much progress he was making in London and in the UK broadly. Uh, I saw that he had done a lot of the theoretical work, a lot of the underpinnings here in the states to bring his ideas from the UK to the states, and I thought, all right, how can we take it and bring it from that from 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 Britain and from theory into the hands of policymakers and planners? And that's what we figured we could do together.
1: We'll, we'll put uh, some links on our on our web episode page. But can you give our brief? Uh, can you give our listeners a brief explanation of? what the hyperlocal planning reform is, uh, both of you?
2: Sure. I mean, the way I'd see it is essentially it's just the idea that we should allow win-win deals to enable more housing wherever it's sensible and possible. So in concrete terms, what that means is just letting small groups of local people opt into more intensive zoning that would allow their home more homes in their small area. And we've suggested you could decide that among the people on a single street, for example, that, that stretch of street between two intersections, or you could have that decision made at a single city block level. Michael, do you want to add to that?
3: Yeah. So as, as you mentioned earlier, there's uh, Yimby's, yes, in my backyard. There are Nimbies. here in the States. We also have FIMBYs, public housing in my backyard. There's a huge debate over uh, how to allow more uh, homes for more people where there's demand for it. And so a lot of the schemes have been very top down. And what John is proposing is very bottom up where you can allow individuals to choose from a menu of, of relatively modest reforms and along a street or a block to be able to choose whether they want those modest forms of what are called upzoning. So to be able to allow more housing. So this is not, you know, giving, getting NIMBYs the not my backyard a chance to downzone to become more restrictive, but this is a chance to say, look, it's actually in your best interest to, uh, to be able to build more intensely on land that you own. We're actually giving people more property rights. And it's kind of a fair deal for them and their neighbors to say, all right, you know, this is not going to be at some citywide or metro wide or even statewide level. We feel very out of control. But over our own property, over with our neighbours, maybe we can unlock a little bit more value. And of course, over in the big picture then, the more you unlock value in that way and try to find a win-win, the more it's actually going to be better off for the city as a whole.
0: And so what's the role within this principle? What's the role of the city council or the, the local authority? would that would they would they still be giving advice in in that regard to determine you know areas that might be more appropriate to that uplift and others that perhaps are not
2: so as we've written it the suggestion is that the local city government should set the menu of which of which options are available to people in each area so it's up to the city council to the city planners to decide you know what should be allowed here and then it's up to the local people to pick among that menu. So it's it's still very much a, it, it, compatible with, with all of the sort of traditional zoning mechanisms that people are used to.
0: I like thinking about zoning as a menu.
2: Yeah,
3: and we're we're trying to we're trying to lower the stakes for change just to tell planners and policymakers, look, keep what you have. If you if you like the zoning rules that you have, you can keep it. This is just a layer on top of that to allow a little more granular change as there becomes demand for it, as neighbours demand it.
1: I suppose it also introduces an element of experimentation on the local level, which which is lacking in that sort of heavy, I won't use the word Soviet glacial sort of style of rezoning, but but why should city planners That's right. and those in related industries take an interest in this subject? I mean, it's, it sounds obvious, but it needs to be teased out.
3: Well, I'll just say one quick thing. You know, there is a hunger, especially in high demand cities, among people who are kind of in the know in the policy space, there's a hunger for some kind of alternative reform that can move the needle because they've been, people who know that we need more housing in America and find themselves probably endlessly frustrated in trying to get some reform passed. It's like, Okay, we can't do something at the city level, so now we have to go to the state. And once you go to the state, well, then there's another set of fights between sometimes urban dwellers, rural suburbs. They all they all fight each other, and then there are worries about you know is this change going to be equitable? Um, what is this going to mean for congestion? N- name the problem. It tends to come up when it comes to housing reform, and so you know. Trying to say, okay, well, tr- rather than trying to go to success of, successively higher levels of government to get reform, though you should continue to do that, what if you go in the opposite direction to a very hyper-local level? Maybe you can actually get better bargains in that level. And I think, I think that's actually where John has made some of the biggest advancements, is thinking just theoretically how bargaining can be improved and outcomes can be improved by going into the hyperlocal level,
0: so within Australia, um, we've obviously got um, quite a significant housing affordability issue, um, as do a lot of countries around the world. Um, and I guess the opportunities to enter the housing market are close to non-existent for many people. Is this a common problem, do you think, across the developed world? And can you cite some examples?
2: Yeah, hugely. It's a, a very common problem. Let me do some international examples, and I'm sure Michael will do some brilliant examples in the US. You know, everywhere from Paris to London um, to, uh, to to New Zealand um, to Italy, ha- have problems of housing affordability, and it's very often you see that it's that they're simply building far fewer homes even than they used to, um, even given much higher prices today and and improved. Uh, methods of construction I mean, if you look 100 years ago in England literally a house used to be cheaper than a car uh, and now it's very much not the case anymore so you know, we've made a lot of progress in building cars and making cars affordable and we've not made that progress in housing but my, even but within the US there's some quite amazing comparisons which I'm sure Michael will tell us about
3: yeah it's 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 unreal so think of the think of the costliest uh areas in the states to buy and build a home. Uh New York being one great example, but California perhaps being the most extreme instance especially along the coasts. We're talking the Bay Area, Los Angeles. You know, it used to be in the in the 1970s that you could buy a home for something around $150,000 in today's dollars. And these homes were less expensive than what you could afford in say Connecticut or New Jersey. And then something began to change right about the time when uh, across the across the country, zoning became the norm. This was really in the 70s, accelerated in the 1980s. Um, all of a sudden, there began this to be this mismatch between the cost of construction and the growth in the, the cost of construction and the cost in housing itself. And so now, uh, again, in a place where maybe you would have been able to buy something for $150,000 in today's dollars, it could be bought more for $600,000 or $800,000. Or in the case of San Francisco, that same $150,000 house is going to set you back a million dollars. That is something like a regulatory tax. And the cost of that tax is, is felt not only in terms of an overall shortage of housing, because and by the way, you would think that with such an inflated cost that you would see in a purely free market, developers saying, oh my gosh, send me in. I want to build to to, to to accommodate that demand, but it's not happening. It tells you something's artificial about this price inflation that essentially acts as a massive transfer of wealth from those demanding the homes to those keeping it and kind of hoarding it and having rules guard their, their access to that asset. And so right now, as a country, we have a shortage of millions of homes. The estimates are kind of all over the place. But, you know, you could easily imagine something like 7 million homes uh, that we could easily build overnight to accommodate the actual demand. Um, and this is particularly acute in the most prosperous areas of the country. So it's not just San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, this is something that's beginning to increasingly afflict Austin, Texas, a big booming tech hub in the middle of the Lone Star State. It's Atlanta, it's even places that had avoided this crisis before, like Charlotte, North Carolina, are, especially coming out of this pandemic, seeing home prices just accelerate. And so I think the message to every single uh, in-demand jurisdiction in the country. So that kind of leaves aside maybe the American rust belt that's been declining where home prices declined structurally for decades. The message to the to everywhere else is where there's demand, you need to accommodate the demand. And it doesn't mean, as some people fear, just bringing in the bulldozer and, and Manhattanizing, as the fear, as, as, as is often termed the fear, Manhattanizing you know, you, the suburb that I grew up in, in North Texas, what it means is just saying, look, wherever there's maybe single family homes, maybe just allow a little bit of adjustment to maybe accommodate two homes where there's once one, or, um, as has been successfully implemented throughout California, um, being able to build a, you know, a small apartment in somebody's backyard. So the built environment can stay roughly the same, uh, you know, adding, uh, Adding two homes where there was once one or adding a backyard cottage doesn't necessarily dramatically change the shape of the neighbourhood, but it does allow for that kind of flexibility and adjustment to add the homes that America and much of the Western world critically needs.
0: So, Michael, just on that point, obviously, there's an issue there with um, supply and demand. Do you think this is a market failure or is it specifically a failure of our planning systems?
3: It's a failure of our planning systems. Full stop. Now, obviously there is some nuance there. So if I were to point to market failures, maybe I would say, and again, even the market failures I'm gonna point to are also regulatory failures, but um, to build a typical home today may involve anywhere between 20 to different kinds of tradesmen, each coming in to build different aspects of the house. Uh, If we were truly being efficient in how we built homes, I would say that we would uh, build the, build homes much like we build cars on an assembly line, with routinized components, and where you didn't have to have skill, necessarily had to have skilled tradesmen building the homes. You could have just somebody who you know screws in something here and you know paste something here and you know just again just like you build a car. Originally, Henry Ford was able to bring in people who weren't necessarily experts in the entirety of a car. As long as they knew how to build one component, you can build the entire thing. It dramatically lowered the cost of building cars, and you could do much the same for homes. But that's that's kind of one small part in itself, a failure of regulation. I can go into all the labor rules, everything else that corresponds with the codes that go into building homes, but nevertheless... It really does come down. So much of that regulatory tax does come down to how we regulate and govern land use in in America, in particular, but certainly not America alone. The United Kingdom and Australia, and you know, this is something that, in many ways, did not exist uh, prior to uh, the nineteen seventies in many communities in America. Really, it definitely did not exist prior to i mean just to pick an arbitrary time prior to world war II, mainly what you saw in the books were rules about nuisance so if if you have some development that caused a lot of noise or a lot of pollution which is certainly the case in many urbanizing areas of america you know those rules prevented real harms to pe- for people but increasingly we said no we can actually regulate the fine grained detail of the urban form. And I think that's that kind of unlocked people discovering that, well, wait a second, I can, as a homeowner, protect the value of my home. I can, in fact, protect the value of, of the access of my children to a neighborhood school all by hyper-regulating the built environment. And once people realized that, there was really no going back. And so we're trying to unwind what's really become the norm from the 70s onward when it comes to land use, and be able to substitute something that is both freer and fairer for for America and hopefully for other countries too.
0: We're clearly getting bogged down um, in Australia, I think, based on Pete's response.
3: <laughs> uh, one
1: approach um, favoured in Australia is for inclusion rezoning. And I think that's an idea pinch from maybe the US or the UK. And that is a land use planning intervention by government that mandates or creates incentives that a proportion of any residential development includes affordable housing dwellings. What's the problems that have come up with that approach in, say, the US and UK, or is or is it a good idea?
2: Do you mind if I just supplement that? You know, because um, I think the the problems have slightly different flavours in different countries, and you know, I think within the UK we see a much more of a concern about design. Um, and you know what it's going to look like and so we found that giving people more comfort about that um, you know people are very happy with kind of you know old style mansion block layouts and, and if you kind of say well it's going to be like that it's not some it's not some huge high rise in the sky. Um, then often that moves them a lot lot further along the way to being happy with it so much of this is there because people are worried about spillover effects and it's it's not completely crazy for them to worry about their street suddenly being much worse from some from some change in it but the other thing i wanted to stress is look this is the idea is this is an additional tool for planners to help planners solve the politics and achieve the goal of what they want to do and in many cases to add more housing so we've got we've seen many different planners in different countries within the inb campaigns who support these kind of things. And you can see the Royal Town Planning Institute itself in the UK has called for trials of, it calls it micro-democracy, which is hyperlocalism by another name, you know? So the, the, I don't want, I don't want this to sound like a sort of campaign against planning systems. We need planning systems. We need, we need to plan. We need to control um, the, the spillover, very real spillover effects, but this is just another way to help that work better to have better planning, if you like.
3: Yeah. So, uh... I think that what we have seen is that overall, one of the downsides of inclusionary zoning is that it raises the overall cost of housing. So uh, a lot of it comes down to how you implement inclusionary zoning. Um, Potentially as a tool in the policy toolbox, it could be an important part of adding some degree of, some some baseline of affordable housing that is assured of affordability. but uh, first of all, if it comes through, say, uh, in, in an incentivized bonus scheme, so if you are, say, telling a developer, look, if you set aside a certain portion of this new development as being affordable, set whatever rate you want it to be. If if a unit was going to go for normally $3,000 a month, if it's now going to be $1,000 a month, but you say, look, we'll help this project pencil out by allowing you to build more densely. So not just you'll allow the excess rents from all the other apartments to help pay for that subsidy, what is essentially a subsidy to those affordable units, but will allow you to add an extra 30 units where you couldn't previously have had those 30 units, then then that helps pay for that subsidy. Um, But often what happens is, number one, it kind of puts the responsibility for the big, broad affordability question on the developer. And allows the policymaker to say, oh, it's not my problem. It's the developer's problem. And second, um, again, it it basically ensures that you have to have some other excess rent over here to be able to pay for the affordability over here. And and the other is that um, it, it has to be something that I, I would say, ultimately, what we're trying to get to is not... Some sort of art, some sort of scarce, affordable housing scheme. That's ultimately what you end up with. There's never going to be enough affordable units produced through inclusionary zoning to meet demand. I think what you really want, fine, have it. But what you really, really need is an abundance of housing. And in a situation where you have an abundance of housing, well, then now you have, you know, lots of luxury housing. But you also have a lot of housing that maybe it's of you know, maybe it's really, really old. And because it's really, really old, it's going to be relatively affordable, um, just without subsidy at all. Instead, what you get in a place like New York is kind of the worst of all worlds, where, you know, you don't have enough housing, there's definitely not an abundance of housing, the only kind of housing then that's available is super, super expensive. Then you have affordable housing schemes where you have to join a waiting list, you're competing with hundreds of people for every affordable unit. And then Third, you know, increasingly in New York, it's not that that affordability subsidy is not being paid for from some kind of excess rent from the developer. No, it's actually being paid for by the government. And so the local government now has to subsidize it directly from taxpayer dollars. Well, somebody's got to pay for it. And guess what happens when uh, tax revenue goes down, say, I don't know, during a pandemic? Well, now you've got to you've got to rob from all these other schemes that you have across the city um, to be able to keep up that subsidy in perpetuity, um, and it just does not work. If you want the most radical version of how unaffordable affordable housing is, just look at public housing in America, where there's tens of billions of dollars in shortfalls uh, of of maintenance, and where that kind of long term subsidy is over the long-term unaffordable to provide. I would also say, just one of the final thing, building quote unquote or capital A affordable housing that's provided for by the government in one form or fashion ultimately faces the same uh, land use barriers that market rate housing does. And so, you know, it, again, if you don't address the underlying issues that prevent an overall abundance of housing, then no matter what kind of housing you want, whether it's public, whether it's capital A affordable housing, whether it's market rate, it's just not gonna happen to the degree to which we really need it in America or any other part of the world.
1: John, did you wanna add anything to that or?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I agree with Michael. When it's done well, inclusionary zoning and similar techniques um, are just a tax on the initial value of the land. And and that's not restricting the amount of housing. Um, When it's done badly, you end up restricting the total amount of housing. um, That can actually make the problem worse. And ultimately, the thing we really have to solve is where are we gonna add all these new homes? And and if we don't solve the politics of that, we're just gonna keep having these problems worse and worse for decades. So we really just need to head on Address directly the political questions: How do we find plenty of places to add new homes? And if those are plentiful, then we'll have much less of a problem. The,
1: the answers that you suggest, the hyperlocal, it's—I it, was struck by—it's it. like a disruptive, like uh, disruptive, like technology, or it's a—you seem to have borrowed concepts from other industries outside the traditional land use approaches. I mean. When I was thinking about, it, I was thinking, well, that, that's Uber, that's uh, fintech, that's it. Was like a a paradigm shift. Am I, am I just fanciful, or it, it just seems quite um, uh, uh, reaching out from somewhere completely out of our universe?
2: I think we need to sign you up as our marketing person, Peter. So that sounds great uh, <laughs> um, i can't say it was based on over i'm afraid but it certainly was based on various things that seem to have worked elsewhere i mean just you know, simple business improvement districts for example those are often opt-in in, um or you can have uh, professor donald Shoup in the states has written about opt-ins for parking controls or you've got play streets in the netherlands um and in fact there's a whole um there's a famous scientist eleanor austrian won a nobel prize for writing about all of the different ways in which different communities have managed local resources, whether they be grazing grounds or forests or fisheries for themselves and done really well out of it, in some cases for over a thousand years. So there's plenty of lessons out there in the, in the real world of how if you give people the tools to actually let them work out a good solution, often they can find something better than you might've thought of yourself initially. That was, that was where it all came from.
1: What what do you think, Michael? Is it, is it sort of a, a a grab from another mindset or a, a economic approach. What? What? Am I being fanciful? John was very kind.
3: Well, no. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll point to an example that John and I uh, wrote about in the op-ed that we published in support of John's report for the Manhattan Institute. We published it in City Lab. Encourage everybody to go check it out. And that's in Houston, Texas. So Houston, Texas, of all the major cities in the States, the only one that has no zoning, not at all. And not only does it have no zoning, but every attempt to introduce zoning has been shot down by the populace, which is so funny. Often the fear is no, the the population of this city, they really, really want zoning in many respects they do. Um, They wanna protect the value of their property Or their home, they want to uh, defend the character of their neighborhood, mainly in the form of the social fabric. But in Houston, partly, at least, this is the theory. This is what John and I argue: is that what's helped prevent zoning from coming into Houston, Texas, has has been because residents have options in the form of deed restrictions, where neighbors can choose their own rules at the hyper local level. Um, and you know you, you see how this works in terms of you know neighborhoods are able to shape some form of uh, the character of the neighborhood, maybe even how, uh, how how they want to beautify their neighborhood. Much as John has suggested, they they have some say over potentially the design of their neighborhood. You also see how this works in terms of uh, reform that in 1998 uh, Houston enacted where policymakers were able to reduce the minimum lot size uh, for Houston by allowing residents and in individual streets or blocks to opt out of that change, which enabled residents to feel like they had some sort of say in how their own neighborhood was changing. And so that was able to not only smooth the path of reform, uh, but also enable us to even get beyond zoning in the first place. That's to me, to I think to John, an example of how successful this idea could could be in practice.
0: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
1: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And so with this hyperlocal approach, um, have you done any thinking around how this could potentially upset status quo in terms of approval processes? Are there good parts or principles, I guess, of that existing process that we have that can be incorporated?
2: Um, Michael, should I fill that like first? So, so, I mean, I look, I think it depends very much on the detail of the jurisdiction, right? Whether I mean, the obvious things like fire safety, that that, that they're going to need um, some kind of regulatory process. So no one's suggesting that um, we just let a committee of people on the street decide about safety, um, so it has to be tailored for the exact um, set of rules that you already have. But the intention with this idea is just very much that it's a supplement, it's an add-on. You know, if you're a planner, you're facing the problems, or you're a city mayor, you're facing the problems that you need to get more housing built, and the places where it makes most sense to build housing near public transport um, or near this, near near to this downtown uh, uh, have faced huge political resistance this is just another way where you can give the people living in those areas the option you know if this suits you you can go ahead with it and the places that want to go ahead with it will and bingo you've just made some granular improvements in your city possible without losing votes which is what obviously the politicians are going to be most caring about
3: yeah and you know sometimes i've heard from planners like oh well isn't don't do we have to come then with some scheme to allow this voting to occur? Won't that be complicated, you know, but just look at what planners already do in neighborhoods. I mean, just take the neighborhood that I live in, uh, right now in Nashville, There is just a process of adding an urban design overlay, any property that currently you could build two homes by right now you can build three or four. It's it's an amazing kind of up zoning. Um, First of all, they separated the neighborhood into different uh, jurisdictions. So even a relatively small neighborhood, they broke it down into something. It's not quite just at the street or block level, but it's not that far removed. Second of all, they went through a process of community engagement over two years. Three, when they introduced the urban design overlay, they had something like 25 community meetings. They're already going through the effort of engaging the community and trying to get their voices. And they consistently say, well, how can we ensure that that is representative? And then four, you know, if you want to say change parking regulations, guess what? You have a, an established system here of getting uh, petitioners and you just get signatures. Um, you go through a separate process of being able to say, have parking placards now uh, issued for a certain street, for a neighborhood, um, and then you add on to that a business improvement district, and suddenly all the revenue that came from those parking placards now go into the business improvement district that then are able to be reinvested along a certain street. All the schemes are there, all the schemes for engaging a neighborhood, all the schemes for slicing and dicing a neighborhood by street or block, and even all the schemes for allowing communities to effectively vote through signatures to change Parking and housing on a hyperlocal level—it's all there now. We just need to use it,
1: M- Michael. For our Australian listeners, uh, uh, parking placards—what what is that?
3: Oh, it's just a permit to be able to get to be able to have the right to park on a certain street without having to pay. So now, all of a sudden, you know, you, you, if you live along the street, you now all of a sudden potentially could just say, "All right, I'll pay two hundred dollars per year." for a little sticker on my car so I can park in the street. Everybody else, they have to pay up. They have to pay by the hour. They have to pay by the day. And that is a a market-based way to manage overwhelming demand for a street.
1: Mm. What what about the uh, criticism that hyperlocal might cause conflicts between different groups of residents or some residents in a block might feel pressured to go along with uh, changes Uh, pushed by the majority?
2: I think think it's it's obviously an important concern, and we've spent years now talking to as many different groups and stakeholders as we can and trying to come up with rules that really absolutely minimise the spillover effect on people outside those deciding groups and also make sure that even within those deciding groups, um, the effects on adjacent neighbours are as, as small as possible and that everyone's got some kind of share of the benefits. So... Look, I don't think it's going to be possible to ever change somewhere in a city without somebody being unhappy about it. You just can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. But um, what you can do is make sure that that's the absolute minimum number of people possible that they're they're definitely better off as a result, at least financially, of that vote, and that therefore there's a large majority that we're really happy with it, and that you're producing more homes. So we've tried to be as absolutely careful as we can. Um, If have got better suggestions you know i'd love to hear them i'd love to incorporate them this is this is always an ongoing process of learning and this is going to be one of the important things of people trying it out um no there's no doubt the first pilot isn't going to be perfect and there are going to be a few people who aren't happy um but we've got to make progress somewhere and if we just if we just freeze our cities then we're condemning a whole generation to lack of opportunity to not owning a home if they want to to not being able to start a family of the size or when they want and just not even being able to live the life that they want. So we've got to do something, and it might be slightly uncomfortable for a few people, but we've just got to press on.
0: I'm sure um, some of the criticism perhaps for this approach um, coming from a lot of town planners is probably around, um, you know, taking that broader strategic approach to planning. So I guess I'm interested in your thoughts around, you know, is the hyper-local approach too local, And how does it fit within that broader context of broad strategic planning across the entire city?
2: Well, I mean, as we—it's su- a great question. But as we suggested it, you know, it's the city that sets the menu. So you can perfectly well strategically plan and say, okay, I think this area next to downtown is right for densification. I think that area with no public transport and the existing congestion problem and huge infrastructure problems is not right for densification. And let's not give them an up- option to upzone. So there's absolutely nothing that um, contradicts strategic plan. Planning within this. And in fact, it can make your strategic planning far more powerful because it's all very well thinking, well, we really should densify this area next to downtown. But if the residents don't let you upzone it, um, then you, you haven't got anywhere. So, so <laughs> this is really just a tool to enable people to achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, uh, Michael, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think uh, we could basically just end the podcast right there. John, John's, John's offered a wonderful summary <laughs> of the work that's ultimately based on what he's been thinking about for years and what's made a lot of traction um uh, across the pond from where i am for him in the uk I, I would just say that a lot of the advances that the states have had in land use reform have come predominantly at the state level or the metro level and it's mainly because you're able to at, at either of those levels knit together a political coalition for reform where Inevitably, there's going to be some community that fears, I would argue unduly, fears either change or fears a cost to um, their neighborhood in some form or fashion or even their home. And you have to be able to knit together a coalition of people who say, well, actually, reform would help not only you, but me. And together, I think that we can actually say that on net, uh, loosening up land use regulations is good. Um, and it's easier to find those coalitions again at the metro or the state level. Uh, at the at the local level, say just the city, um, or within broad neighborhoods, there are enough people who fear that maybe the cost of uh, additional traffic or the cost of some unknown future possibility of, of their house price being uh, negatively affected. There's just enough people who can act as a veto on change. Um, Again, I think unduly, but you do have to, especially if you're a policymaker, you do have to recognize their concerns, recognize they probably come from a legitimate place. Um, There's normally enough to, to kill any meaningful reform. And so basically most of the conversation now has been, how do you get up to higher levels of government? We're now trying to tell people at the city level who are, increasingly frustrated that any kind of meaningful reform can happen and say, actually, here's an additional tool in the toolbox, another menu of reform that you can offer people. Because actually, if you go to the hyperlocal level, you can find enough, you can actually knit together a coalition along the street, potentially. And it's actually much easier to do that. Um, you can do the same thing at the block level. You can knit a coalition together there. And, um, I think there's enough successful examples uh, uh, either in housing in Houston or parking in a place like San Francisco to say that it is possible.
1: Michael, John, does this, the YIMBY supporter base, it, it seem it would seem to be attractive to both sides of politics, um, you know, the, the free market on the conservative, the right, and also the sort of social justice on the left. Are you seeing that sort of coming together these issues and supporting hyperlocal
2: in the uk we're absolutely seeing that you know everything um, from the left to the free market and also the conservative right um because from every one of these perspectives there is a problem and so the key for us has just been to find something that pretty much everyone can be happy with, and, and you know, the reason why we, we, we went through hundreds, if not thousands, frankly, of different reform ideas, and the reason we've ended up with these is because we threw them all against the wall, and these were basically the only few that didn't stick. That, that, that sorry, that did stick rather. That the only few that somebody didn't absolutely scream about. Um, and so if you if you're giving people an answer to their problem of how do we how do we answer this question of unfairness? How do we create opportunity? How do we create growth? Um, then people grasp it with both hands, and it's not a party political thing. It's not a partisan thing. It's just a let's just fix this.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right that uh, the the politics of housing reform cut across traditional partisan boundaries. It's fascinating. I'll give you two quick anecdotes. One from a very progressive jurisdiction another from one that's traditionally very right of center. So I was in Boulder, Colorado recently, and there's a huge debate on housing reform. It's an incredibly expensive area. A lot of demand to live there. It's a beautiful place, wonderful people. And it's all very left of center. They care deeply about the environment. And the debate on housing is really between and among left of center folks, especially among progressives. It's a generational divide, certainly. You have people who um, had maybe an earlier conception of environmentalism that feared new people coming into a community and the cost on the environment of those new people and traffic burdens and the like against a younger version of environmentalists who believe that density allows you to mitigate climate change and, you know, stops people from driving with all those emissions and just allows people to live more efficiently and that that is better for the environment. And you also have the the generational divide coming in the form of people who bought early on in the '50s, '60s, '70s when most of the housing boom happened in Boulder, against people who are now in their you know 20s and 30s who can't buy a home because all the homes that are on the market are a million dollars or more. And so uh, it, it wasn't really about your partisan divide. It wasn't about what your opinion of Donald Trump. It was really about this kind of. Div- it was more about um, how, how do you how do you view things generationally? How do you view things environmentally? How do you view um, just, yeah, how do you even answer the question of equity? It was all these questions that really have nothing to do with your partisan politics. You know, meanwhile, I go go to Texas and you have people on both sides of the divide. You have, yes, in my backyard, people who are progressive and market-oriented, even libertarian, all on the same side together saying, yes, we agree, we need to deregulate um, to be able to drive efficient and equitable outcomes. Both sides come together to say that. And then on the more NIMBY side, although, of course, nobody wants to be called a NIMBY, but on the NIMBY side, you have people who are left, right, and center saying, for whatever reason, we don't think that this, you know, maybe you have people who are right of center saying, you know, we we believe in localism because we are conservatives. And as locals, we want to be able to determine the fate and fortune of our own communities. And we don't want somebody in liberal Austin telling us what to do from the state capitol. And you have people who are leftist center saying, too, you know, uh we believe that we need more affordable housing and all of these luxury developers coming in. That's that's all we're gonna get in our neighborhood if you loosen up zoning in any form or fashion. And, uh, you know, until we see more capital A affordable housing and more public housing, we shouldn't have it here. In fact, one of the one of the people who most um, vociferously makes that argument is the mayor of Beverly Hills, California. He says, you know, I'm I'm liberal. I'm progressive. I support more housing. I just don't want those those big bad developers coming in doing that. And so this is why we've allowed uh, net three new housing units over the past year.
2: Can I just add to that? So, you know, <laughs> it's a brilliant summary, Michael. Um, I think the other, to your point about NIMBYs, you know, one of the really striking things recently in the UK is that it's like we've got some incredible campaigners here who've done an amazing job of getting organisations who essentially spend almost their entire time being nimbies about things, objecting to developments, trying to block developments, trying to block more housing, um, who have signed up for these reform proposals because they believe it's a way forward that will not only add homes but actually improve the city they live in and that's why I'm quite careful to steer away from saying this is deregulation to me this is better regulation that more carefully objects the real concerns that people have and allows them to bypass sort of unnecessary obstacles that were getting in the way of everyone moving forward
3: That's right. And and I think John is doing such a good job of being able to balance what he knows from a theoretical perspective, from a policy perspective works. He's also able to clearly identify a need and the barriers to that to that need for more housing, but also keep in mind what will actually move the needle politically, what will actually convince policymakers and planners, because, you know, I, I, I can't come in and just tell a neighbor, well, you're a NIMBY, therefore you should support uh, you know, our, our policy. It's just not going to work. You have to be able to ensure that somebody sees that you're not coming in to threaten their way of life, their home, what they love about their home or their neighborhood. You have to make sure that they know that actually this is going to be in their best interest. It's going to be in the best interest in their bottom line. It's going to be the best interest of what keeps the essence of their neighborhood together and preserves that going forward while accommodating more neighbors whom if you ask them do they like the neighbors Well, quite often they say they will and you know if you point them to somebody who just moved in maybe they'll say well we uh, we like that joe across the street moved in we're talking about those other people you're trying to say like well actually you know more of those other people are probably going to be more like joe and by the way it will help you gain more say in rent from being able to build an accessory dwelling unit, a backyard cottage in your own backyard and being able to make that argument is hard. It takes time. It requires a lot of nuance and patience. How John is communicating on this podcast is the essence of exactly what we need. I also think, you know, you need some folks out there, whether you're hearing this from me or from others, just delivering it straight to people who, you know, you need to shake people and say, this is a crisis. And if you live in Australia and you know, if you're a 20 something trying to buy, if you're in New Zealand, if you're a Kiwi, trying to understand how in the world we got to this place where New Zealand has some of the highest housing prices relative to incomes in the world, you need to be able to shake people and say, no, this is a crisis and we need change. We need it in a big way. We need need all of that in order to fix this crisis.
0: So, since you published this article, what kind of feedback have you had? Has it been overwhelmingly positive, or has there been quite a bit of criticism as well?
2: Um, I, I've been I've been really pleasantly surprised by how the, the, the huge amount of positive interest has been from from not only from around the world, but from different professions, from planners specifically, from um, city leaders, um, and from st- state governments as well. And so, there's obviously been two classes of kind of criticism the first was well that'll never work and the second criticism is well yeah but that that would be that would be incredibly controversial when we get all this housing that people wouldn't want now they can't both be right i would notice so you know (laughs) so uh, my guess is the truth is somewhere in between and that it would generate some additional housing and it might be a bit controversial but let's face it um you've got to be a little bit you've got to inspire you can't get this done without um, having a few people complain so overall i would say it's been a very positive reaction and hugely encouraged by how much interest there has been
3: i've been encouraged out here in the states Um, i've gotten positive reaction again across the partisan divide Um, but also from policymakers saying thank you for giving me something that I think I can actually sell to my constituents, that we could actually get some political agreement behind. Like you can't just keep selling me something that, or trying to convince me to pass some reforms that I just don't think outside of a state capital I could actually do. But this is actually something I could use. And in fact, I don't even have to introduce it as a political tool. I just tell planners, this is something, you know, this is something that even behind the scenes we could implement. And that maybe would be politically popular. And if anything, the criticism has has sometimes been, if I'm honest, just sometimes some, some ill informed criticism of saying, "Well, won't people try to downzone in their neighborhood? Won't people try to? Won't won't this to encourage the the nimbys?" And we say, "No, no, no. Just I mean, hear the details of the proposal. We're only allowing people to upzone when it actually works to their benefit." It's more a question of how can we continue to educate people because the more we educate them, the more kind of criticism begins to melt away, and that's a good problem to have. If anything, if that's the criticism we're getting, something we just need more education, that's a good thing.
0: And and obviously the more education people get, um, you know, the more reform that we do start to see, that provides a huge um, vehicle, I guess, for other cities around the world to start adopting those things because, you know, the... The classic issue that we always have is well where has it been done before what have been the problems you know what can we learn from those experiences i think that's really important
1: and just taking that you've established a sort of theoretical idea john and michael but have you thought of developing a toolkit that sets out guiding principles just to get it to the next level so that it, it so people can just take this and as you said pilots are always going to be a learning experience but that actual sort of toolkit and when is the app going to come out as well are you going to develop an app
2: oh Peter, i think we need you we need we need you running this campaign clearly because i think the toolkit's also a brilliant idea uh, and uh, I, my my brain is just exploding from the idea of an app now so this is this is all great stuff uh, clearly i'm
0: i'm also i'm also just picturing um, like the uber app but for planning <laughs> 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 for local planning <laughs>
2: Yeah, let's, uh, I agree.
1: Let's yeah, it, yeah. Should- I, I think there is possibilities of using that.
3: Yeah, I, I'd also point to, uh, I'd also point to John's piece for the Manhattan Institute, laying out this idea of hyperlocal zoning in more depth. He also has a case study in there where he says, okay, let's take a hypothetical city and walk through what it would look like to implement hyperlocal zoning, so that you could conceive in your mind how it would work. We try to do something similar in our piece for City Lab for Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut's right now going through a heated debate over state level or regional reforms to encourage more of a kind of missing middle of housing types. And we say, all right, so whatever happens with those reforms, how could we convince potentially Greenwich, Connecticut, a very expensive pricey place where a lot of people would otherwise like to live, but just can't afford. Um, how could you convince Greenwich, Connecticut, how would, or Hartford, how would you convince these towns to be able to allow a little bit more housing where there's demand and what would the process of implementing hyperlocal zoning look like there but you know we can point to examples whether it's Houston or whether it's in other fields like parking we can point to these case studies um, but really just encourage more jurisdictions to reach out to John reach out to me at Manhattan Institute and we're happy to implement a terrific idea like hyperlocal zoning in your jurisdiction.
1: Well, well sold. And uh, moving on, what are your next research projects or what sort of things are are triggering your interest?
2: Um, I think this is probably going to keep me busy for a while, to be honest. Uh, It's just so much incoming interest from various different places. And and to be able to say anything um, that's that's not just completely done, I have to try and learn a bit about the the, the, the rules or the, the situation where they are. So um, don't expect anything much from me other than this for quite a long time, I'm afraid. I'm sure Michael has got a lot of other things going on.
3: I mean, what we're trying to do is say, all right, let's offer a menu of reforms. So, so hyperlocal zoning is itself introducing a menu of reforms at a street or block level, um, say just allowing, you know, a vote on whether or not you want duplexes in your neighborhood. Um, But we're trying to introduce yet further menus at all levels of government or all levels, all levels of jurisdictions um, to say, allow more housing where there's transit. Um, Maybe being able to convince different governmental bodies to develop more housing. So in the New York area, looking at how the train and subway system for New York MTA Uh, has vast parking lots in and around uh, train stops where you could conceivably add a little bit more housing. There aren't neighbors nearby saying, well, what about about the noise, what about the congestion? They aren't nearby. It's just vast swaths of underutilized pavement. Maybe we could, I don't know, add some mixed-use development with little shops at the bottom where train travelers and commuters could shop at and get a sandwich on their way into work or you know, and above that, maybe two or three stories, nothing big, just add some more housing. You know, that that's kind of the low hanging fruit for reform that we're trying to push. And we're also trying to give policymakers more tools to be able to make the case to their constituents. So, you know, one thing that we're working on right now is looking at the jobs housing mismatch, saying in the these are the jurisdictions in America over the past 10 years, there's been a huge jump in jobs. All right. For every one new job. How many homes have you permitted? And you'll find that in a place like San Francisco, it's been basically three new jobs for every one new home permitted. Of course, in that scenario, you're going to get a massive jump in home prices, particularly considering that those jobs are very well paid and their money is chasing after a scarce housing supply. And we're also going to try to do, like in New York, more um, polling on various different policy prescriptions, including on uh, more flexible housing and land use so that a policymaker can come along and say, you know, maybe it's actually in my best interest to sync up some good ideas here because the people, if I phrase it in this particular way or I offer this particular menu of reforms, people can actually get behind it rather than just focusing on the scary headlines of people just driving a, a project into oblivion over, you know, years or decades of lawsuits as you often get in New York or California to actually say you can actually do this and get re-elected.
1: Well, Michael, that that pr- producing stats on that jobs to houses ratio, that, that's a sort of information that's out there, but it's not teased out to inform the public domain. Uh, Jess, I think that you know we really lack that sort of uh information uh f- material to build our policies yeah you think
0: yeah agree. It's it comes back down to that data um data-driven approach that i think we've spoken about quite a few times on our podcast so you know i completely agree with that
3: yeah and it's about connecting data to messaging and messaging that moves needle on policy um, as you noted teasing out how many new jobs have been added or how many homes have been permitted it's all available data this isn't rocket science but you package it in a certain way and you deliver that to policymakers and you say, and here's the message that will get this policy across the finish line. That's hopefully what moves the needle for change.
0: Yeah, definitely. So we're just coming to the end of the podcast now. So we wanted to ask both of you um, if there are certain words that you live by, a phrase or a saying.
2: Um, for me at the moment, um, it's surprising what you can get done when you don't care who takes the credit for it. That's great,
3: John.
1: What about you, Michael?
3: Gosh, I'm just looking forward to the end of Zoom. You know, uh, this is I'm I'm I'm. This isn't a word or phrase, but I'm just looking forward to in-person friendships, right? Being able to get back together again safely, healthy, and we're almost there. Yeah. We're almost there. I love I love seeing you, John, on Zoom and talking remotely. There's so much about this, this, this kind of coordinated experiment in remote work that's been very, very beneficial for so many people. Being able to get to a world where we can have this and lots of together time in person, that's going to be a world I can't wait to see. And hopefully it's a matter of months, not years.
1: And uh, another tough question. How do you refresh and relax, John?
3: Well,
2: I love to listen to podcasts, but it's hard to find ones that are as well-informed as this one, especially on planning. I must say I've been blown away by how good the questions are, so thank you very much indeed. Um, and I do try, I, I love to catch up with friends as well, and um looking forward to doing that in person very soon, uh, but also to read history, because it's just amazing how many of the issues we see today have been encountered before. So it's important to read about that, I think.
3: I'll, I'll echo John in reading history history. You know, you you can read any number of, you know, if you're really into it, you can read planning textbooks. You can read some really interesting um, wonky literature, uh, as, as I guess we have to do at a think tank. But being able to understand that what you're dealing with right now is not new and that we've been through some challenges, we've seen debates like this before, it's kind of humbling and kind of comforting to realize we've seen crises before, we've gotten through them, uh, we've gone even through pandemics before. This is not new for cities. in fact, cities have flourished because of pandemics and how we've responded to them. I find that very encouraging. You know, my wife and I have also, in terms of trying to rest and relax, it's not just reading, we also figured we'd get a puppy too. Turns out getting a puppy is not exactly restful and relaxing right at the beginning. Check back in another year, and I think it will be. Uh, but we're finding we're finding ways to relax. Uh, even when we have a puppy waking. Up somebody, yeah.
1: And now we come to Podcast Extra or Culture Corner, something uh, both of you and also Jess, something you've read, watched, listened to, experienced lately uh, that might be of interest to our listeners.
2: So I'm going to... Um tell you about there's a podcast another podcast uh, I've discovered recently also by an Australian called 80,000 Hours which is really mainly aimed at people at the early stages of their careers trying to decide what to do that's most useful and most helpful um, but it's incredibly well informed and they go into deep dives on just some fascinating topics. so if um, if anyone uh, wants another podcast in addition to this brilliant one that might be something to consider.
3: Well, and I'll also say, um, check out the Strong Towns podcast. This is uh, a podcast series that John has been on as well. So check that out too. But um, Charles Morone, he was was a relatively small town planner who realized that the way that we develop in the States, and I hate to say it's not unique to the States alone, is often fiscally unsustainable. So extending a road far out in some field somewhere and building a cul-de-sac at the end of it. The increase in property tax revenues that comes from those single family homes, let's say along that stretch of asphalt, don't actually pay for how much you've invested in the asphalt, how much you've spent on the pipes and the wires to feed that new development. And so what happens is is 20, 30, 40 years on, when the bill comes due, whether it's in the actual debt you've incurred to build or whether it's in the cost for upkeep, just is not there and so people tend to, uh, you kind of get this phenomena of disposable suburbs where people just say, all right, I'm not here to, to pay for that upkeep. I'm going to move on to somewhere else. And you get another bright, shiny new suburb that they invest in. And You know, the old burbs don't exactly fall off the cliff and die. They just now become someone else's problem. And maybe they suffer and other services are cut in order to pay for the upkeep um, and you know, this is something that he, Chuck Marone, through Strong Towns, is trying to really fight. There's been this kind of national movement in the States to fight it. And uh, the podcast that uh, that he leads with his um, uh, podcast host, I believe the podcast, he has one for Strong Towns. He also has one called UpZoned. Definitely encourage you to check it out. It's a really good listen. Um, maybe that's a little too wonky. I'd also say my wife and I are super into uh, – murder mystery podcast you've got to find some way to to break out of your day-to-day policy work if all i'm doing is housing day and night it's going to be a very very dull michael Hendricks, and my wife i think would agree and so we try to find ways to just uh you know loosen up a little bit after we've been working all day and at home
1: Chase. Mm.
0: I've, I've got to say, I've got to say as well, Michael, I've been looking at your bookshelf behind you thinking, I wonder if that's real or if it's been choreographed. Cause I'm saying, I'm seeing something city. I'm seeing something, I think, is there a boom town down the end there?
3: That's right. So yeah, obviously good. if you're, if you're listening to this on a podcast, you can't see what's behind No. Me. but if anybody's really into this genre of urbanism, I would encourage you to check out. In fact, one book that really intersects with what John's been working on and what he and I wrote on with Hyperlocal Zoning. Alain Berteau, he's the Indiana Jones of urban planning. His book, Order Without Design, is a terrific, terrific book of how we should actually think about how cities can flourish and how we can do it even without top-down planning. He basically combines the planning profession with urban with urban economics, mm. um, which is in many ways spearheaded by Edward Glazer. Who wrote The Triumph of the City? He's a senior fellow for us. It's another good book. I cannot recommend enough if you're into the subject. So that was
1: Order Without Design. Yep.
3: Order Without Design and Triumph of the City by Ed Glazer. Highly, highly encourage it.
1: Jess, your podcast extra?
0: Well, it's a very impressive bookshelf. <laughs> Well, funnily enough, I was actually going to recommend Strong Towns as well. I actually started listening to that a couple of weeks ago, um, sort of, I guess, partly in preparation for this interview as well. Um, So I won't recommend that because it's already been recommended. Um, But another podcast that I have been listening to is um, The Invisible City, which is a Canadian um, podcast by Jennifer Keysmat. So that's another really interesting one for those of us that are in this space and interested in um, anything to do with planning and cities and... Um, city evolution so what about you pete sorry we haven't covered off on you you've always got a few good ones
1: well i've never mentioned i i I love 10 blocks um michael and uh that's i mean a a lot of it's it's uh, a podcast comes out of the manhattan institute it's uh, it's it has a very american focus but the issues that are happening in the states i expect will happen here jess so it's it's fascinating to listen to, the, and it's such high quality. The other podcast I like uh, is a UK one called London Calling, and that's a bit uh, that's by James Dellingpole and uh, Toby Young, and the, that's uh, an acquired taste, but it's um, a bit out there, and it, it's fun, and it's nothing to do with planning. So, um, but Michael, John, you've been tremendous guests, and I, I hope our listeners will really take take this whole concept on, and we'll have links on our episode page to the, the published works, but uh, anything you'd like to say in, in final to our listeners, John and Michael.
3: Read John Myers, follow, follow John Myers and support his work. That's my message. Uh, but you can also follow work at the Manhattan Institute um, on Twitter. Uh, feel free to email me too. Um, I'm always keen to talk. Uh, you can feel free to circulate um, on your page to my email address. i M. Hendricks at manhattan-institute.org. Always keen to chat.
1: And uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Michael. And thank uh, you thanks all. again, Jess.